if you do decide to live with someone, you need to keep track of what you spend and who spends what. The contributions you make to the relationship are relevant. So when we say to the client, okay, I need to know who paid for what, who paid the water bill, who paid the gas bill, who paid the Foxtel. And I go, oh, geez, I don't know. I don't have a memory of it. I chucked all that stuff out. I'm no hoarder. Welcome back to Pocket Money, guys. I'm Sally. And I'm Mark. Today we have a cracker of an episode planned. We are talking about divorce. <laughs> Such a lovely, light-hearted topic. Get your smiles on. <laughs> but I think it's very relevant at the moment. Um, the world's wealthiest man, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos, is currently facing what has been described as one of history's biggest divorces. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money at stake. So he and his wife, Lauren Sanchez, didn't sign a prenup when they married 25 years ago, uh, which was, I think, around the time Amazon started. So there's $140 billion worth of fortune, and it's going to be split 50-50. And this could have actually a big impact on Amazon. It's yeah. one of the biggest companies in the world. And obviously, splitting that money could have ramifications for the company. So today, we're going to be talking a bit about this. Yeah, pretty wild. And while most of us probably don't have billion fortune, you know, yet uh, at stake, Mark, I don't know about you, uh, could be hiding some money under the table. Uh, it does raise a few questions about how much divorces can actually cost and the tricky truths of prenups if things do go south. So to get the facts, we're going to be chatting with Sydney divorce lawyer Fadan Shevket today. Uh, she's been practicing for more than 15 years and has even drafted her own perfect prenup that covers everything from property to even her shoe and color-coded Tupperware collections. I get, you know, very antsy about my Tupperware too, so. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some passive, uh, aggressive <laughs> notes in the kitchen. Do not touch my containers. <laughs> and before we get started, if you can and you enjoy this episode, please share this episode with at least one friend who you think might enjoy it and pick up something useful from it. We're a new podcast, so we really appreciate it if you could do this. Yeah, and if you're feeling especially charitable, feel free to give us a five-star review uh, wherever you're listening, and it would make us really happy. (laughs) Okay, let's get to the interview. Cool, so welcome, Fadan. Thanks for joining us in the Finder office today. How are you going? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for work and your experience in this area? I've been a practicing family lawyer in Sydney for 16 years. I'm accredited family law specialist, which means all I do is family law and I really love it. Wow. So how did you originally get into that and like really want to focus on family law? Because I'm sure it is a really interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say, and especially clients say that it's, you know, it's highly emotional Um, And other non-practicing family lawyers say, how can you do family law? All the emotion. (laughs) Um, And when I was in law school, I um, had a part-time job in the family court just to kind of earn some extra dollars. And my job was the court officer who sort of runs the list and escorts the judge to and from court and sort of has a clipboard and sort of makes sure that the list is ticking over. And I really loved it. And I used to sit there all day and listen to cases. And I'd be sitting there thinking, you know, I don't want to be this person. I want to be the lawyer on the bar table. So, you know, I had a five-year degree and I finished that and I said, you know, I really want to go into family law. I feel like I'd be good at it. Um, I'm not particularly emotional. So I feel like I can kind of put the client's emotions to one side and kind of concentrate on the legal matter. And so I started in 2003 and have been going ever since and have worked in a couple of firms around Sydney, but always in Sydney. 
And family law is federal, so it doesn't really matter where you are around Australia, it's all the same. What does family law exactly cover? Like what are the different sort of parts within it? Yeah. Foremost, it's divorce, so legally ending the marriage, which is entirely separate to doing a property settlement, which is dividing your assets. Mm -hmm. Um, There's parenting and child-related matters. There's child support, which is financial support for the children, and there's spousal maintenance, which is financial support for your spouse. So not a lot of people know about that. Uh, And then there's also the documentation side, things like consent orders and uh, binding financial agreements, also known as prenups. Wow. Yeah. So we obviously want to talk a little bit about divorce and prenups and all of the costs and and maybe some of the hidden costs as well uh, involved that a lot of people don't talk about. But I know that we've read that uh, you pride yourself on having a very thorough prenup, probably one of the most thorough oh, ones. Yes. 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 You should see this thing, it's an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk us through that a little bit about the process and maybe some of the things that are covered that, you know, your regular Joe might might not think to, to put in theirs? Yeah. So I guess prenups, people think it's pre-marriage. So if you think about getting married, you need to have a document to protect your assets. Whereas that's not exactly right. Mine is a de facto prenup. So before I moved into living together with my partner, I want a document to protect myself because once you live together, the clock starts ticking. And when the clock is ticking, it means they have a claim. Living together for two years, they can make a claim. So I was very, very conscious with him that he has his place, I have my place. There's no merging of assets. I'm not going to give you a key. You're not sending your mail over. You're not leaving your stuff at my house. No toothbrush, no jacket, nothing. You pack a bag. You come to my house, you leave, and I'm like, wait, don't forget your bag. (laughs) You're not leaving anything because if they do leave stuff, they could say the clock has already started ticking. That is, I was spending three nights a week at your house. That's it. We're living together. And I'd be thinking, what are you talking about? You have your place. I have my place. There are strict rules. But because of the case law and what some of the judges have said, it can be included. And I guess the good example is the mistress, where you have the guy who's got the mistress to one side and the wife to the other side. And it's been deemed the mistress was a de facto relationship. He's seen her, he's financially supporting her, she's got a key. That sort of terrifies me. So I was like, I'm the smart one. You're not leaving any stuff. There's no suggestion that there's any financial support here. You're doing anything around my house, you're getting compensated. Because that way you can't say you made contributions on the other person's property. So with that sort of foundation, you know, after a while I did build some trust. took about a year. (laughs) Um, And then I was like, okay, well, because our relationship is getting more serious, I want a document to protect my assets. Now, there's obviously a big disparity. So he's coming in with hardly anything. I'm coming in with lots of assets and wealth. If one person earns more than the other person and you break up, the other person has a claim for maintenance, which is some of your income. You know, it's a really scary thing. Why do I have to maintain someone? This is my hard-earned money. I need shoe money. I need bag money. (laughs) I've got to support my ex. But this is what the law says. So I'm very, very conscious that in my prenup, I wanted a clause about maintenance. No maintenance. You must work and you must own your own money. And that's it. I earn my money. That's my money. And also the protection of the asset. So my prenup is a de facto prenup. So once we start living together, it kicks in, which we have now done. And it says the longer we're together, the more you get. Because you can't have a prenup that says the longer we're together, you get nothing. (laughs) You've been together for 20 years, you get nothing doesn't work. Those ones will be set aside. So unfortunately for me, I have to work out the payout. And that was a very hard thing to do because I had to be objective and not be stingy. But (laughs) I do it for clients all the time. So depending on the wealth of the person, it could be like 20,000 a year for every year of their relationship, but you cap it. So it's not going to be a million dollar payout at one point. If you have kids, they get more. And there's always a clause about if you break up, what happens? 
So for example, if you're living in a house owned by me, you got to get out. So I need a clause about that. For example, I'll pay for your removalist up to 10,000 in costs. I'll pay for your relocation expenses to get yourself some furniture because let's face it, all the furniture's mine. <laughs> so you're going to need some stuff. If you're driving a car owned by me, you get to keep the car. That's me being generous. <laughs> so there's certain clauses about physically saying after you break up, what happens to get them out? Once they're out, then there are other clauses about the compensation, but you don't get that money until you've moved out. So it's a little bit complicated, but that's basically it. And there's a list of assets that coming in you want to protect. So you literally have a schedule. So I often get clients ring me and saying, but I don't want to tell the other person what I have. It's secret, it's confidential. And there is that, I guess, unwillingness sometimes for people when you just meet someone or you're together for a little while, you don't want to tell them what you've got in the bank. You don't want to tell them your assets. Now, I don't care about stuff like that because I'm very open, but a lot of people do care and they absolutely do not want to tell the wealth to the other person. But here's the thing about prenups, you must tell them. Not only must you tell them, you've got to particularise it. You've got to list everything. You've got to list the bank accounts, you've got to list the super, the shares, how many shares, your companies, your trusts, everything. To protect it, you must disclose it. A lot of people don't realise that. They think you say, anything I come in with is mine, anything you come in with is yours, we break up my stuff, your stuff. But in legal terms, you have to quantify it. So people are often turned away from the prenup after the lawyer says, you do realise you're going to have to disclose. And to them, that's the deal breaker. I'd rather take my chances and not tell them. Wow. Yeah. Rather than lay everything out on yeah. the table. Because then Jeez. they know how wealthy and for the first time their spouse will realise what a great catch they are. That's crazy. <laughs> really speaks to how much of a taboo subject money is sometimes, right? Yeah. yeah. With your partner not willing to disclose. Because remember, it's yeah. early in the relationship well, yeah, too. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, um, you know, t after 10 years, no problem. But after one year, maybe not. You touched on moving in together and possibly merging your finances. And you sort of mentioned that, you know, there are things you should do before you would even merge finances. What are the most common mistakes people make before they actually get to that point? Merging money is a big one. So joint accounts is something that people tend to think is a fun thing to do <laughs> and practical, but it's a really bad idea in de facto's because it does sort of say, when I say living together for two years, that's one of many things. There's about 10 factors which deem your relationship de facto. Merging finances is one of them. Taking care of the other person financially is another one. So mm -hmm. if you let somebody pay for things around your house or do things, and, you know, that's their offering, why not? Do it. That's a very dangerous precedent. And this is something nobody ever does. But if you do decide to live with someone, you need to kind of keep track of what you spend and who spends what. Because mm -hmm. if ever you break up and you don't have kids, the contributions you make to your relationship are relevant. So when we say to the client, okay, I need to know who paid for what, who paid the water bill, who paid the gas bill, who paid the Foxtel, and I go, oh, geez, I don't know. I don't have a memory of it. I chuck all that stuff out. I'm no hoarder. And I'll be like, I need the hoarder. The hoarder's the best client <laughs> because those people have all the documents. Keep your finances separate. That would be the best thing possible. After you move in together, like my prenup, for example, we have a joint credit card and then a list of things that the joint credit card we're allowed to use. And over time, you know, because I didn't have on there, for example, food. I just thought because the credit card would be 70-30, I pay 70%, he pays 30% of house-related expenses which is how we own our property. But occasionally we'd kind of just whack things on there like food. And then afterwards I thought, well, why am I paying 70% of the food? I don't eat 70% of the food. <laughs> this clause needs to be changed. It needs to be 50-50 on the food. And occasionally there'd be areas where he'd kind of whack something on the credit card by accident and I'd be like, that's not authorised expenditure. <laughs> I'm not paying 70% of that. You know, you've got to be sort of monitor it and be, and be careful. So every month I do actually reconcile the credit card and say my expenses, your expenses, this is what we each have to pay, which is fine. I guess... That would be annoying to some people, but 
it's important to those people who have the wealth and need to protect it, you need to make sure that you are documenting who's spending what and how you're spending it. And a lot of people just don't do that. They just live their life, which yeah. is perfectly normal, but not for the family lawyer like me. <laughs> <laughs> so is there like a middle ground then between, like you said, you know, you're a family lawyer, so you're obviously very exposed to these kind of things and you obviously want to get the best result for yourself if something were to happen. But for the average person, is there like a middle ground when it comes to that or do you still... I hate to say it, but don't move in together. That's the best <laughs> advice ever. And if you are going to move in together, you need to have strict rules about who pays for what and keeping documents and tabs on who's paying for what because it's going to matter later. And it's a good idea to get a document in place that says if you do break up, what happens and who gets what. And that is our financial agreement. People don't know. They're just uneducated about the existence of the document. People are reluctant to bring it up. People may not sign it because it's all voluntary. You can't make someone sign it. Um, and it's expensive. It's probably a good, at this point, to raise the topic of prenups and binding financial agreements. Explain it like we were, you know, 10. What are they and how much do they cost and what's the process involved? Yeah. We all have relationships and you can have different types of relationships. You can have boyfriend-girlfriend relationship and there's no legal rights that arise from that. But once you take it to the next step, which is de facto, and we say that is living together, and once you move in together, as I've said, after two years, or you have a child, or they make financial contributions on your property, there's three criteria there, then they're classed as de facto. So those people can get a prenup. When I say prenup, you're not actually ever getting married. You're purely de facto. And it's important to remember that. If you decide to get married, you need to do another one. That is an actual prenup. It's a, what we call a 90B agreement. You have your de facto, which is purely de facto, people who are never going to get married. That's the one I have. So when my parents think one day I'm going to get married, sorry, mum and dad, we can't. I have this document. It doesn't actually let me do it. So you have your de facto prenup and then you have your prenup. That is actual premarital people who are going to get married. The document will say we are going to get married on and we'll have the date. If wow. that marriage doesn't happen, the document will not go ahead. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's conditional on the marriage taking place. There's something called a 90C agreement. So this is for people who are in an intact marriage or de facto relationship and you decide you want a prenup. So you're in the relationship. Very, very strange. So I've had two over 15 years of these types of agreements. One because a man couldn't sleep at night because he'd inherited all this money and he really thought the wife was going to come after him and just leave him to try and take it. Oh wow. And he had some, two small kids and he came to see me to say, I need a document to protect all this money that I come into because I'm really worried and I really can't sleep at night and I can't look at her the same way because I'm a different man now. I was poor when she married me. Now I'm hugely wealthy. So I want a document that says, if ever we break up, I get to keep my inheritance. So I said, um, yeah, we can do it. But let's face it, she's never going to sign it. You're already married. Mm. Yeah, You've got right. no leverage. Yeah, right. the prenup, you say, I'm not going to marry you unless you sign it. You're already married. You've got a couple of kids. What are we going to do? He's like, no, 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 don't you leave that to me. She'll <laughs> sign it. This is about five years ago. And perhaps not to my credit, I said to him, look, I'm going to put the names of three lawyers who kind of dabble in family law. They're not fantastic. They do a bit of conveyancing, a bit of probate, yeah, a little bit of commercial lit. I'm going to refer her to one of these three because they don't know a lot about family law. <laughs> so let's see if we can get away with it. That was my genius idea. So I gave the names of three lawyers, gave to him, said, give her this list and say, pick one of these or one of your own choosing. She picked one on the list and I sent the draft to that lawyer. And I said to him, wait for the amendments. This thing's going to come back with a million changes. And then, you know, a couple of days later, it comes back and it's signed. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I made the thing so heavily in his favour. I just expected the lawyer was going to make some changes and they never did. 
And I remember the client's name, right? So every night, I can't sleep at night sometimes. Thinking one day this woman's going to come back and try and sue me or sue her lawyer for this horrible, horrible document. About a year ago, this guy actually did ring me. He's like, I don't know if you remembered me. I'm like, yes, I remember you. Of course I remember you. And you he's passed like, your insomnia onto me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. And finally, the relationship is over. And he's like, oh, I really need a will. I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. So I did a will. His relationship still in. And it really was a good thing for their relationship. Wow. And in my security packet, my, you know, safe custody, I've got his document sitting there one day waiting to surface where he gets all of that inheritance. And because I didn't have anything else, she gets barely anything. So I don't recommend that. Now I'm wiser, smarter. <laughs> I'd never do that now. So that's an example of a during relationship document. Then you have your post-separation, people who break up. You mm-hmm. can do a financial agreement that way. It's not that common. Maybe 20% of people do it like that. And that's because it's not court approved. So if somebody comes to me and says, my husband's offered me a million dollars as a financial settlement and I'm happy to take it. I just want the million bucks and I want to get out of here because I hate the relationship, I just want to get out. I understand the need to get out. A lot of clients have it. So that million dollars sounds pretty fine. But when you hear they've got 15 million and she's getting 1 million, it's a terrible deal. So the court would never approve it. So the normal process is where we do court papers stamped by the court. That's your settlement. We call that consent orders. You can't do it in this case. The court's never going to approve it. But the client wants to do the deal anyway. In that case, you do one of these financial agreements. What we call the bad bargain. So (laughs) you get around it by having a a document because you must get legal advice. He must get legal advice. It's still legally enforceable. You get all the things that come with a financial settlement. So they're a little bit unusual, the bad bargain, but it does come up occasionally. It sounds like it has a lot of depth to it. What are the sorts of things that you can put in them? I guess the big one that people want to do is protect future inheritance. So you can do that. Protect existing assets. You can do that. Protect your income. So the spouse maintenance claim. You can actually have a spouse maintenance waiver where you say, I will never seek spouse maintenance from you and you will never get it off me. Or you can fix the spouse maintenance. I'm happy to pay your maintenance, but it's 500 bucks for six months and that's it. So the biggest thing is asset protection, to protect your assets coming in and the assets you may acquire. Because if you come in with a property and then during the marriage you actually sell it and acquire another one, you can have a clause that says any substitution of properties that I have right now. So you protect it as well. So we kind of think about it like a quarantine. You come in with stuff, that stuff is quarantined, it's mine. Anything I substitute or replace, like if you have a share portfolio, you're always going to be buying and selling. So you want to make sure that there's a clear paper trail to say this is pre-marriage stuff because stuff that is matrimonial, stuff you accumulate during the relationship is usually treated differently to stuff you had before. It seems like it's just as much for the future as it is for what you already have. Yeah, and that's a big misconception because when people ring me up and say, oh, it's all very simple for Dan. It's very, very <laughs> simple. You can do this really cheap. i got my stuff. She's got her stuff. It's pretty simple. And when I say, no, you can't have that. You can't have a document that says I protect my stuff and she protects her stuff. You must contemplate every single asset you're ever going to acquire ever in the relationship. There needs to be a clause. There's a clause about everything. I think I've thought of everything because I've done so many over the years. So my one is like, oh, I'll steal that clause. I'll steal that clause. (laughs) Everything you should possibly ever want. You have to have a clause about it. And what about non-tangible or like unusual assets, like frequent flyer points or these days, you know, like cryptocurrencies or even like sperm and egg donations, that kind of thing. Does that sort of stuff come up? Not so much. So you can protect your frequent fly points and your Bitcoin and that sort of stuff. And it will just go into the schedule. You'd probably have to quantify it though. You wouldn't be able to say all the frequent fly points that I own. You'd probably yeah. have to say, this is how many I own. Right. Because remember, there's the pre-marriage and then there's the post-marriage. So yeah. the matrimonial component. So usually your spouse would be entitled to some of the stuff you accumulate when you're together. 
embryos and that sort of thing, no, you can't put those in a prenup. Same with parenting. You can't have anything about kids and the care of kids. So you can't say, you know, if I have custody of the kids, then this is the percentage. If I don't have custody, so you can't say anything about parenting at all. Oh, really? Other than the fact that you have kids, you can say that. Financial support is an entirely separate document. Right. You can't contract out of your rights. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to draft up a BFA? I guess you need to have the discussion with your partner first about whether or not they're prepared to sign one. When people ring me and they say, I want one, that's my first thing. I Have you talked to mm. your partner about this? Because it's a very sensitive topic. And sometimes the position is they will not sign it. They don't even interested in talking about it. So the lawyer can't do anything. It's all voluntary. So you need to kind of, in a softly, softly, gentle way. Sometimes I write <laughs> scripts for clients about, you know, how they bring it up. And I'm naturally suspicious. So if the answer is, no, I'm not prepared to sign it. I'm not prepared to consider it because our love should be enough. Right. <laughs> I say break up because um, that's a gold digger. And frankly, if they can't see where you're coming from, then there's trouble there, big trouble, because you're naturally worried about something that is especially for people later in life. If you've worked with your whole life, accumulated all these assets, why should the other person have a huge claim on it just because they marry you? There's got to be some sort of equality there. And they should get what they're entitled to. But unfortunately, the law sways towards the non-income earner, the homemaker parent, and the person who has a lesser income earning capacity. Knowing that in advance, you're marrying someone who has a job that can only earn a certain amount of money. In your prenup, you need to think about, okay, well, we have to give them some compensation, but we can cap it and make it more reasonable than what a court might do. You mentioned that sometimes you coach your clients through how they can raise the topic. Is there any general sort of tips you can give about well, how you could raise yeah. it? Like it's kind of beyond my field because I'm a lawyer, I'm not a counsellor. But sometimes <laughs> they say, you know, the family lawyer slash counsellor because the clients are looking for your advice and guidance with no expertise or qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> I can just kind of say, you've got to bring it up in a way that makes her understand where you're coming from and not an aggressive way. Mm -hmm. And if it's that vulnerability, like the man in the inheritance, just saying to her, that I'm really worried because I've come into this now inheritance, which is mine, and one day you're going to come into your inheritance. I just want to protect mine and I'm happy to protect yours is a very sort of softly way of saying I want to keep my money. Mm -hmm. But by making it about her as well, because that's true, one day she will come into your inheritance and she will get that money and she'll be able to keep it. And saying to the other person, it's going to be fair. I want you to have an equal discussion with it. You'll get your own lawyer, nothing to do with me. Your lawyer will negotiate what's fair for you so we can have this document that's going to be a discussion between us and it's going to be something that we both come up with together. It's not me imposing this on you. Well, you do have to go from that really pragmatic standpoint because it is such an emotional issue. Like you're essentially <laughs> preparing your partner for, you know, a potential end mm. of a relationship. I think it's a really good point though that I think from TV and movies, we are under the impression that you get this prenup and then you just got to sign it and that's it. But, you know, that's true. Like you do have your own legal advice. It's not like you can't have your own say in the whole matter. And do prenups always hold up later in the relationship? It's a difficult question. And no, they don't always hold up. There are strict guidelines for the drafting. So you don't want to get your solicitor on the corner store to do knock up one for 1500 bucks <laughs> or, or download from the internet. You can yeah. actually download these things from the internet. A disaster because they're not going to comply. So there's a whole bunch of rules, sections of the act, clauses that must be in there. And this is sort of built into that premium where I say it's about 10 grand for the minimum. It's built into the precinct and all the stuff that you need to have in there. So ones that are missing essential clauses get set aside, ones that are void for uncertainty. So what I said, you don't do what the prenup says. You merge your money. 
you start buying and selling things off your quarantined schedule of assets and putting it into, you know, family home. So when the relationship's over 15 years later and we try and trace the money, you can't because you didn't do what it said. That means the prenup is out the window. I guess another one of what has come up recently in case law is um, undue influence or duress. So where people do have that wedding date booked, you know, the Russian bride or whatever, where you marry someone off the internet, you bring them here, they've got nothing. They've got no money, they've got no prospects, they've got nothing. All they've got is you. And you take them to the solicitor's office, I need you to sign a document. And, you know, that solicitor, crazy, should never, ever put themselves in that position and, and sign it with the client. But some solicitors take the view that you pay my fee, I'll sign it with you. And I'll advise you not to sign it. Here's the letter of advice. Sign here to say I've given you the advice not to sign it. <laughs> cover here, cover my ass, you know, liability issues, waiver. Okay, I'll sign your prenup. Case over. They only ever saw the client once in that initial consultation. Wow. Where they're sitting there with the, you know, reading the prenup for the first time. Those ones are vulnerable, hugely vulnerable. And there's a lot of them floating out there right now. And when lawyers like me get them and the person comes to me and says, okay, relationship's over, I want to get out of this thing. And they give it to you and you say, oh, this is an excellent case <laughs> because that's the other sort of area of law. You've got the, the creating them, but then the lawyers try and chuck them out, try and set them aside in a court. So wow. it's expensive, but you can do it, especially if you have the good things like undue influence, duress, didn't get proper legal advice, could barely speak English, the mm -hmm. documents in English, there was no translator, you know, easy, cheap shot. Wow. That's so interesting. So if we move now towards the breakdown of a relationship and divorce, so say you haven't had one of these agreements in place, what on average does a divorce cost? It's obviously a very hard question to answer because there's so many factors, but what are the costs involved and if you can give any kind of guidance around that? Yeah, look, I think um, different types of cases have different costs. So if you've got your standard case these days, it's usually a parenting property, a couple of kids and standard property, maybe a house, an investment property and some super. So most people will kind of pay between 5000 and 8000 to get their family law situation settled. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of cases go to mediation and resolve. There's only a small percentage of people that actually end up in a court um, and they're the people who can't agree. And you're looking at big fees then. 10000 could go all the way up to 200000 And it kind of depends on uh, the issues in the case. So if you're fighting about children and custody of children, who's where the kid's going to live, that case can go all the way to the end because what they never back down. If there's issues of drugs, alcohol, violence, also that case can go all the way to the end because one person's fighting to see the children, the other person's trying to protect the children. They can't agree, they can't mediate, a judge needs to decide. Um, but that's about 5% of cases. It's not the vast majority of people. Most people have disputes about values of assets. So say you've got a plumbing business and then, um, you know, that's worth nothing. It's me. <laughs> if I left the business, there is no business. No, but what about all the cash you bring home? It's a cash business. I'm telling you, Fadan, there's money there. <laughs> so those sorts of people, we need to get a professional valuer to value the business to actually look at what's it worth. And then you will eventually settle when you agree on a number. But you might have to spend a little bit more money um, getting valuations and things like that. Um, other ones like where there's been a big windfall of money. These days, parents are very generous to their <laughs> children because you can't buy a house in Sydney unless your parents help you out. Yeah. yeah. So the parents give in money and they give it to allow you the couple to buy the first house. This happens all the time. They break up. The parents say, no, no, it was a loan. There was no gifts. I don't give gifts, okay? <laughs> I want my money back. And then the person whose child it is says, yes, mum and dad lent us that money. Of course. It was never a gift. It was a loan. <laughs> and then the spouse is like, what are you talking about? It was a gift. We haven't paid them interest. We haven't given them any money. So the gift loan argument is huge. Big, big fight. That case can go all the way. Wow. 
And you alluded to maintenance, the idea of maintenance before. Obviously, there's a bit of a misconception in Australia about alimony because it's, uh, as I understand it, it's more of an American concept. So maybe you could explain what alimony is in the Australian equivalent. Alimony and spouse maintenance are the same thing. So we call it spouse maintenance. Americans call it alimony. Spouse maintenance is basically financial support for your spouse. A very common situation is you have homemaker mother at home, raising children, not in the paid workforce. The other person at work earning money, you break up. The person who's earning the money stops the money coming into the joint account. So then the homemaker mother has no money. So the credit card is cancelled. You're not getting access to my wages. That's it. They're cut off. That person has an excellent spouse maintenance claim. You go to the lawyer, the lawyer files an application. We then have a look at hubby's income and his expenses. And we say, well, during the relationship, he was putting in two grand a month into the housekeeping account, into the joint account. We want him to continue to do that. But now she's got to move out and rent. That's going to be a thousand bucks a week. So we also want that thousand. So now you're up to 3000 a month and you work out how much the expenses are and how much the income is and whether there's a difference. So the bitter pill, I guess, for the non-income earner is that they have to go out and work. And that can be sometimes a really difficult concept for me to explain to a person who's left the paid workforce to raise children, that now that the relationship is over, you have a duty to mitigate your loss. You're out of this relationship. He doesn't have to financially support you forever. You must go out there and find a job and work. But he has to support you in that. So if you want to be a nurse, you want to go and do a course, he'll pay for the course. He'll give you spouse maintenance while you're doing the course. But at the end of it, usually three years, you're on your own. And and it's no gender bias. Spouse maintenance can be from woman to man. And these days, um, that certainly does happen. But it's the same test. And de facto or marriage, it's a partnership. And because of that, when the relationship is over, the other person has a duty to maintain you to the extent that they can. It has to be affordable. You can't ask for money that they don't have. That's why in these sort of celebrity cases, when they talk about alimony, there's so much money. Like Britney Spears paying... Kev yeah. Federline, oh, yeah. right? And he keeps asking for more money. He's, yeah, he's not actually doing anything, <laughs> but she's got so much of it. So, you know, he's allowed to have an extravagant lifestyle because there is something called the standard of living you had during the relationship. Oh, my God. Needs to be maintained post-relationship because that's the person that you kind of picked. So, you know, she picked a bit of a dud there. Yeah. <laughs> She'll be paying forever until those kids are 18. Right. And it sounds from what you were saying, it's like theoretically it should be something to just help the other person get back on their feet. Yeah, Yeah. and it's a temporary thing. Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. That's what it should be for. In court, when you go and you get a spouse maintenance order, people, in my experience, don't agree to pay spouse maintenance. They very rarely agree. You have to get a court order for it. It costs around 10 grand to go to court to fight for spouse maintenance. Often if they had 10 grand, they wouldn't have a need for spouse maintenance. But usually the lawyer says, don't worry about my fees. We'll get you the maintenance. You can pay me once you start getting your maintenance. So let's say it was a thousand bucks a week. You'll continue to get that thousand dollars a week until the case resolves. So then all of a sudden, the person who's getting the thousand dollars is pretty happy for the case to go on for years. Mm. They're getting the thousand bucks a week, right? And the other person's super keen to resolve the case because then the maintenance will come to an end, but because it's an interim order. So that kind of changes the dynamic. So once you get your maintenance order, you can kind of sit pretty for, for years. And lawyers like me might take advantage. <laughs> <laughs> if you're clever. I know that we spoke about um, how children and uh, maybe even pets, fur mm. babies, um, <laughs> could change the situation. Is it the same with divorce? Is, is children and like, you know, who gets to take care of the children and the payment that goes there, is that separate to the divorce as well? Is that a separate? Yeah. There's, I guess, three different things there. There's the parenting, there's the divorce, and there's the child support. Mm-hmm. So the parenting 
usually parents are the best people to be able to judge what should happen with their children, um, not lawyers and certainly not judges. So it's usually the situation that both parents will go off and see a counsellor and they will help them or a mediator work out what we call a parenting plan to work out a bit of a schedule for seeing the kids. So both parents get to see the children frequently. That's the vast majority of people. 80% of people can work it out and work out the schedule quite amicably. People who can't, as I say, end up in a court, but they tend to work out what's in the children's best interests. Do the parties live close to one another? That's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the bond like with the children? Are the children, do the children have any special needs? And I guess the children's wishes if they're old, older than, say, usually high school, so 12 plus. The children's views are really important. If they want to live with mum, you can't make them go to dad's house because they don't want to go. So we have to sort of um, come to a situation and a parenting plan that works for the children as well as the parents. Then you've got your child support, which these days is governed by the Department of Human Services in Australia. So it's sort of a division of Centrelink and the tax office. And it's based on the amount of nights you spend with the children. The more nights you spend with the children, the less you pay. What's interesting about that is one person has an incentive to cut off the nights because they get more money. So that's never a good thing. But the number of nights the children are in your care, um, your taxable income, your spouse's taxable income, and the ages of the children. All of that is plugged into a formula that the government has set up. And voila, there's your child support, your periodic child support. As soon as you separate, parties can contact the Department of Human Services and get the child support. You don't need to agree. It's not like a negotiation. There's a base formula amount, what the government says you have to pay. And that's what you pay. So lawyers can often negotiate things like private school fees, which is not going to be covered in that formula, mm-hmm. or private health insurance premiums or orthodontic bills. So you can also have extras. So that's sort of the child support. And then you've got your divorce, which for lawyers like me, it's the least important part of the process. It's pretty boring. You can do it online, do it yourself, <laughs> divorce kit, download the form, fill it out. It's about 950 bucks to get a divorce. It's going up every year. It used to be in the 300s. But they've got a monopoly, right, the government? So they can just keep putting the fear. Every year, before you know it, it's going to be $1,000. And you as more and more people pay. are getting divorced, why not? Yeah, that's what they <laughs> do. It it's really is extortion. You lodge it, you pay the fee. Divorce can happen six to eight weeks. Oh, wow. So, and all it does is end the marriage. Nothing to do with property, nothing to do with kids. It just ends the marriage. Why? So you can go out and do it all over again and get remarried. <laughs> Believe it or not, some people are crazy enough to do that. Good for lawyers like me, keeps the work coming in. <laughs> And what if, you, if you're if you an Australian and you've married somebody from overseas? Uh, what's the process around that? Is there any potential for like international laws to come into play or do you have to follow like everything by the Australian laws? These what I call international relationships are trouble. <laughs> Stay away from them, folks. They're not a good idea. If you meet someone and usually it's the expat or the traveller, the tourist, you fall in love with them, the tourist wants to... Um, settle down with you and get married or whatever, you do that. But remember, their family network is at home. So if you have kids and it doesn't work out, they're going to want to take the kids and go back home to their country. So that's where there is this international law. They're not allowed to leave the country without your consent. So there's lots of cases where people are trying to relocate back to their home country because the relationship's fallen apart. Usually they end up going before a judge to make a decision on that. So you have the parenting aspects for the international relationship. You also have your child support situation where people live in different countries, but you have to pay financial support for your children, no matter where you are. There is a list of what we call reciprocating jurisdictions, which are on the list for that formula for the government. Um, And they can collect like the UK and America and a lot of the sort of Anglo countries are fine. The third world countries aren't on there. So it kind of depends if the country that your spouse lives in is a reciprocating jurisdiction. Some of them are not and you cannot get child support. 
it can be a little bit of an uphill battle depending upon the country of origin. We also have, of course, the prenups in international relationships. So you want to marry someone from another country, you want to bring them here. It's tough because the language barrier. They need to be advised by an Australian lawyer about Australian document. And it's very hard to do when they're not here yet because they have a visa problem. You can do it. It's just very expensive. And a lot of lawyers will stay away from them because we're worried they don't truly understand, even with an interpreter. Because remember I said it's meant to be a negotiation. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to do when they're in another country and they're trying to negotiate a prenup they don't really understand. You also have the people who are always moving, you know, live in America for two years and go to Russia for two years and go to China for two years. So what is the prenup going to say? Because the Australian prenup is for Australian assets for Australian people. So if you separate and you're living in London, you can't say, oh, we've got this Australian prenup I want to kick in. The Australian prenup will protect you in relation to your Australian assets to some degree, but the laws in which you separate will kind of kick in in that country. So, for example, I see for all the time South African prenups. Maybe it's a standard thing over there. There's heaps of them. So South African client comes to me and says, my relationship is over. Here's my prenup. And it's from South Africa. This document is not binding in this country. Remember I said there's a big list of criteria, all the clauses you've got to have in there, the legal advice, the certificate by a solicitor. It must be in the document. This thing hasn't got it. It's not binding. It doesn't mean it's irrelevant. It is relevant. We read it. We see what it said was going to happen. Um, it's more of a negotiation tool. Mm -hmm. So the best thing is when you separate, you want to be in the country where your prenup is because that's the right document. Otherwise, they're hugely vulnerable. Hey, babe, let's go on a vacation. <laughs> go visit the fam. Long-term vacation. <laughs> Slide yeah. the prenup down. Surprise when you land that's in right. the airport. Exactly Surprise right. prenup. <laughs> the relationship is on the rocks. We have to go back to the country of our prenup. <laughs> Quick, let's organise a flight. <laughs> nothing sus, nothing sus. <laughs> yeah, otherwise you need to have several from different countries that yeah. protect the sovereign nature of that country, which people commonly don't do. Um, so we're almost through our time here, Fudan, but we're wondering what is the strangest possession or assets that you've had people battle over? You know, for example, you know, has anyone ever battled over like collectible Harry Potter knickknack? That would be Sally. <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that? Um, I had one, and that, well, I suppose it's quite sad, but I had like a burial plot that people were fighting over, which was wow. quite sad. They had a child who'd passed away and they bought the plot, the plot above it, and the one next to it. So the mum would be above the deceased child, the dad was going to be in the plot next to it. But of course, they had a huge, horrible breakup and he didn't want to be buried next to her. Didn't mind being buried next to his deceased child, but didn't want to be buried next to her. So it was a big fight about who got the plot with the deceased child and the plot next to it. All their other stuff, you know, all their assets, they could work out everything. But that, they just couldn't. And because it's so sensitive, yeah. it's not really a legal advice thing. It's more an emotional thing. So, it's, And in the end, they ended up severing the plot to sell the single plot. Uh, the mum got with the child and then that plot he was just going to sell because he didn't want to be near her um, in death. Even in death. Even wow. in death because he really did hate her. So that was kind <laughs> of unusual. I've had memorabilia. So often cricket memorabilia and rugby memorabilia, like one of a kind sort of pieces where people – break up, they leave the house and the person who's behind hides the good stuff, Ooh. right? Goes and stashes it at their parents or at their workplace or whatever. So when the person comes back and says, hang on, there's a big, what happened to my art? And they're like, no, they hold it for ransom until the end of the settlement. And then they say, because possessions are very funny things, especially with jewellery, because mm. you can say, I lost it. You know, you want to put the engagement ring in the pot, which might be, you know, 30 grand. I lost it. <laughs> it's not in the pot anymore. 
because you don't have it as an asset. Same with those sorts of things. Oh, we must have been robbed. What happened to the art? Um, because it's only there if you can actually claim it, if it's actually um, physically there. So people do all sorts of clever things to try and protect their stuff. And one of them is stashing it and lying about it. And temporarily things go missing. <laughs> now, I'm not encouraging anybody to do any of these things. But frankly, if you want to keep the good stuff, you've heard me. Yeah, keeping those uh, Harry Potter box sets I know, close right? to the vest from now on. <laughs> And do you have any final advice or if there was like one thing that our listeners could take from this, there was like one gem of uh, wisdom I guess that you would leave? the most commonly asked question is whether or not I should move out. You hate being there. Should I move out? The person who moves out is always disadvantaged. So the answer is no, do not move out. Stay in the house. Because when you're both uncomfortable and you both hate living together, you're highly motivated to settle and highly motivated to work it out. For example, if there's a husband and wife living in a house, they had a big fight, they separate, he moves out, goes and lives with his mother, she's in the house, he's still paying the mortgage because the mortgage is still needs to be paid, and then she shuts up shop, changes the locks, she's in the house, he's living with his mother. So she comes to see me and says, you know, he's moved out, he's paying the mortgage, she's getting about life. I'm like, wow, this is a dream for you. <laughs> Don't do anything. Life is great. He's gone, you're in the house, the mortgage is being paid. Fantastic. Let's drag it out for years. He comes and sees me. I'm like, oh, no, you moved out. She's in the house. Life is terrible. We have to get back in that house. Because he's highly motivated, but she isn't because life is great for her. So the advice is don't move out. Both be miserable. You both see a lawyer. Then you come to an agreement to either sell the house or one buys the other out. Wow. <laughs> Just get a piece of tape, put it like down the middle of the house. <laughs> you stay on your side, I stay on my side. But the kitchen is on that side. I can't even get anything. <laughs> so that's generally speaking. Sometimes, of course, if there's domestic violence or something, you do have to get out of the house. Yeah, but, of course. Um, generally speaking, that's sort of the rule of thumb. There's a lot of strategies and mental games and things that go into all this, obviously. Yeah, that's why people need to see a lawyer. So when people don't see the lawyer, they just go about their life and then afterwards come to see the lawyer you know, you missed it. You missed your chance. All these great things we could have done <laughs> and you didn't come in earlier. So you're kind of stuck with the situation. Sometimes people change lawyers from the lawyer they had to, to me and I look at it and I think of all the strategic decisions Aww. their lawyer made. I think, oh no, he's really botched it. And now I've got to try and fix it. But it's really, really hard. So when you're thinking about separating, usually that's the time to get the advice. Find out what you're entitled to. Find out what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and usually the money is something that's really important. You don't want to be separated and left vulnerable. So when you hear about women sort of hiding money and tacking money for the rainy day mm -hmm. or men doing that, um, there are lots of things you can do while the relationship's intact or on the rocks. Uh, it's not a bad idea to get some advice about it. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Padan. We've learned so much and uh, it's been really interesting and eye-opening. So yeah, thank you so for much. For better or for worse. Till death <laughs> do us part, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No problem. If anybody wants to learn anything more about this topic or even the services you provide, where should they go? You can find me online. So my name, Fidan Shefket. You can find me on the Fox and Stanyland website. If you Google me, I'm the only Fidan in the whole Australia. So F-I-D-A-N, Fidan Lawyer Sydney, you'll find me. Yeah, I present seminars frequently around the North Shore and, um, you know, give me a ring. I won't charge you for the call. <laughs> we can have a chat about your circumstances. Excellent. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for listening, everyone. That was a great episode. Lots to go through. What was your sort of top takeaway, Sally? Uh, there was so much, but I think the thing that I didn't realize before was that a prenup is like, 
a, a collaboration, you know, you can't just go in with all of these outlandish requests and like, I want to keep everything, you know, your partner does have to voluntarily sign this thing. And yeah, you know, obviously then like a lot of negotiation strategies, like how do you bring that up? Like the best ways to go through that. Yeah. There's just so much to think about. It's crazy. Yeah. And you do get your own legal advice, like the other part. So it's not as Hollywood led us to believe. (laughs) They always like, they always do this to us. Again. (laughs) My takeaway was there's many different types of these binding financial agreements. And one of the common ones that people don't do is actually when you're already in a de facto relationship, which is when you've been living together for two years. So I think there's so many different stages that where this could be kind of applicable. So it's interesting to know that. Yeah. And I think most Australian couples live together before they get married. I think I read somewhere it was like more than 80% or something. So it would apply to a lot of people, like whether they're planning to get married or not. Yeah, exactly. So that's it for today. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you find your podcast, follow us and share this episode with a friend if you think that it'll be useful to them and they'll enjoy it. And as always, leave us a review because it helps us get the message across, get our podcast out there and get more awesome guests. Exactly. And then we can make sure that we're creating the podcast that you guys love. And uh, we did mention a few different links and resources throughout the episode. So we'll make sure to put those in the show notes. And uh, of course, we also have a bunch of great guides around divorce and tips for joining your finances with your partner on Finder. So we'll make sure to put those in the notes too. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, we'll be chatting to you very soon. Until next time. Catch you later. Catch you later. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you like this? (laughs) Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening.